You found the Sassy Thoughts Podcast, the place for anyone who works at a tech company from startup to scale up. Where we help you get ahead of the trends that affect your work and life so you can make better decisions about how to spend your time and money. And on the back of the 4th of July weekend in the US, we're talking about crossing chasms, making leaps to new companies, literacy in sales, and of course, Sam's new thing. That's right, Matt, crossing the chasm, crossing the chasm. I always loved the sort of parody of this. I don't know, did you ever watch the show 30 Rock? Uh, you know, I did, I don't remember. I think it was pretty funny, right? It was really funny. And um, there's a parody, you know, the uh, Alec, Alex Baldwin uh, plays the sort of fat cat executive guy. And uh, one of the episodes revolved around uh, falling into the crevasse. That was the, uh, the parody of Crossing the Chasm. What is Crossing the Chasm, Matt? Why is everybody trying to do it? Well, okay, Jeffrey Moore uh, uh, wrote a book about this and a, f- a famous uh, professor out of, uh, I think it's Stanford. I must be, I should know this, uh, but certainly Silicon Valley. Uh, and Jeff Moore talks about the fact that companies made the mistake of uh, thinking that they were being successful as they got early traction when really it was a false positive because the folks that were buying their product or service initially were the innovators, the people that wanted to be the first, do something no one else had done uh, and the visionaries, the early adopters, um, but those people run out pretty quickly. So, you know, this is sort of 1990s thinking. Uh, and what you had to do was get across from there to the uh, the mainstream, as it were, right? The conservatives and the laggards. Because if you get there, the theory is that's the middle of the bell curve where most of the market resides. So getting from those early adopters and visionaries across to the mainstream, that's the chasm. You've got to jump across the chasm. I see, I see. So when you're starting out, especially in tech, you have people who are willing to change, you run out of those people eventually, and you got to get to the people that are not so willing to change. Doing that is called crossing the chasm. Not everybody does it, but you know something, Matt, I've heard about this for years, and it's always been, to me, a little bit like business astrology, meaning it's something that a lot of people believe, but when you look closely at it, it's not exactly falsifiable. I mean, consider, like, how do you know if you are in this chasm, right? It means that you're, you're slowing down, you're not selling to as many customers as you were before. But every business pretty much ebbs and flows. Some businesses, I mean, how do you know if you're, if you're really in a chasm situation or a temporary slowdown? If you, if you slow down and then you speed up later and slow down again, did you hit two chasms? I mean, like, is, what's, what's going on here? Is this legit? What do you think? Well, it all comes down to the psychographic profile of the buyer, right, to really understand uh, whether or not you've crossed a chasm or not. So the idea being that if you're speaking to somebody who is by nature a, uh, a conservative, meaning that they don't want to be the first person to abort it, you can tell that because they'll say to you things like, well, can you give me some case studies? Can you give me some references? Who else in my industry is doing this? Um, they, they, they want proof of the pudding, as it were, before they buy. If, if those people are listening to what you have to say and moving forward and buying your stuff, then in theory, if you've got them at scale, you have crossed the chasm. You're now talking to the mainstream. The question is, though, you know, um, what does that look like today, right? Is, is, if, if the psychographic profile of the mainstream is more innovative, if, if, if we are all now compelled um, to, to move faster, take more risks, be closer to the bleeding edge, then is that still true? that the mainstream resides in that in that part of the segment? Well, I've definitely been in companies where we seem to run out of addressable market, sometimes called TAM, right? Total addressable market. 
Sounds similar to me. I mean, you can define it any number of ways. You can say that, oh, the reason why we're not selling to more people is because we sold all the risk takers and now there's only risk averse people and we haven't done a good enough job of, of sort of de-risking the perception of using our solution. You can say that, but I mean, how do you de-risk the solution? Isn't that the same thing as just trying to add and change features and functionality and marketing to appeal to different people? Isn't this the thing that companies are always in the process of doing? To me, it seems like growing your total addressable market is basically the same thing as crossing the chasm. There's just this mental framework, which might be a useful one, might be a useful one, um, of being in some kind of hole that you have to dig yourself out of. But when you do, but when you do, and I think this is why people really like it, it's like, oh, there's only really one chasm, <laughs> right? There's only one real chasm. And if we can just overcome this, then we're gonna just shoot straight up into IPO land. And we're all gonna be rich. And I think yeah, that's there's a lot kind of, of a really fantasy. good learning. <laughs> I think there's a lot of good learning that comes out of his, his work, though, that still holds true. And that is basically that, look, if you're gonna, if you've got a horizontal solution, let's say like CRM, for example, um, or even a, a communications platform like like Slack. Uh, if you're starting out, what you should do uh, is go and get the. You can go and get all the innovators you like. That's fine. But if you want to get into uh, the mainstream, into for example, you want to get move up market into enterprise. Enterprise does not take risks. There's too much political capital at stake. Therefore, you need to have references and case studies and relevance. And so what he says, which is absolutely on point, is that you go deep. You go narrow and deep. So you go and sell to all the oil and gas companies. That's what you doing you just do that you start with the small ones the innovators the visionaries and at some point you'll have enough of them enough references that you can then dominate that vertical and then once you've got that vertical figured out you can then jump across to for example healthcare because you know oh look you know chevron uh british petroleum these massive uh conservative companies are using us you can trust us too that still holds true but i think in terms of being relevant to the folks listening to this and technology um I don't think it comes down to a TAM issue because for, for, for most folks, you know, the segment addressable market, as it were, the subset of the total addressable market is big enough, actually, uh, in many cases, without having to cross the chasm, as it were, into the mainstream. There, you know, uh, or, or, or the argument is the mainstream is actually innovative now uh, because if you, don't, if you don't move fast and break things and, 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 and take risks, then you'll get left behind, right? So I think there are two different topics. But actually one topic that I think be interesting to folks, Sam, that I know you've seen as well is in the Valley, there's this really interesting theoretical cap of around 20 million bucks in revenue. It makes no sense to me that it should be numerical like that because some folks are SMB, some are enterprise, but it seems to be around 20 million people tend to slow down and stall right a lot of people do and my my rationale for that is it's because usually they're selling they're a vc back company selling to other vc back companies and that money's easy to get right it's within the same investor network we're all innovators we all take risks but getting outside of the silicon valley bubble can be a real challenge and and that that is in my world one version of the chasm right and certainly if you look at later stage investors they're looking for proof that you can get outside the valley or the tech bubble yeah that makes sense a lot and it reminds me of a piece that i read a while back by tomas tomas tunguz did i say his name right i only ever read it uh love that guy love his writings and i think he's a, a vc over at redpoint uh, great blog, great blog. And he wrote a piece once and it was all around why do companies stall out? Why did they become less innovative after series B? Uh, that was the piece. And his explanation was tech debt. 
that basically it's just a fundamental law of software that as it increases in complexity, your ability to change that software uh, slows. It just gets more cumbersome as the number of lines in your code base uh, grows. So I do wonder if, yeah, some of it has to do with definitely getting the easy money in the VC bubble, that makes sense. I do wonder as well though, if it's like, you know, very difficult to build a product that maintains a low enough level of tech debt that you can make the necessary additions and changes once you're 20 million in and you're trying to escape to the chevrons of the world, you know? Yeah, yeah, that could be true. Could be true. So yeah, that's my thoughts on the chasm. And I think, you know, for folks out there that are selling to innovators and visionary, I think the rules have changed. I think there's enough uh, people out there that you can sell to, um, you know, even these very large companies. The trap you need to avoid though, if you're in enterprise sales, is ending up doing those, um, what they call them, the innovation labs, the innovation groups, right? So you're selling to Chevron, but you're actually selling to their innovation lab and they'll spin up a hundred projects just to suck it and see, right? And they're quite happy to drop $50,000 on a test and never do anything with it. And all of a sudden we all get excited. Oh my God, I've got Chevron as a customer. No, you don't. You're playing in their sandpit, right? And getting out of that is a tricky problem. Yeah, that's true. That's true. A lot of I could talk about on that, but you know something, the Chevrons of the world are always lagging behind tech companies, largely because they just can't get the smart people to work for them. I mean, of course, that's, that's an overgeneralization. They get plenty of smart people that work for them, but you know, a lot of the absolute smartest people, at least publicly, they tend to go to more cutting edge tech companies. I don't think that's a secret. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why is they just do a better job potentially hiring, giving perks, making it seem like a better uh, place to work here. But another reason why is that uh, startups, tech companies in Silicon Valley, et cetera, they tend to not overlook uh, folks who have different kinds of backgrounds. Maybe they didn't go to college, for example. These kinds of misfits, if you will, are not filtered out uh, in, in the Valley the way they are in large corporate organizations. And you know something stood out to me recently, Matt, around efforts to further innovate on this and further find uh, even more talent, even smarter people who might be otherwise overlooked. And you actually surfaced this on, from TechCrunch, I think. Can you, can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, and this idea of um, uh, competency-based testing that has nothing to do with curriculum vitae's resume or anything else associated with the person such uh, away from uh, a meritocracy. Like, can you do this stuff? And I like it a lot. Um, and, you know, one of the companies that was featured was Test Gorilla. Uh, I don't know them, but just for just for giggle, Sam, I thought, you know what? I wonder what Test Gorilla thinks of Matt Cameron's uh, enterprise sales and leadership competency. Uh, and um, I do have some questions because there were four areas in the to be outside sales that they tested for, which uh, qualifying leads, managing opportunities, overcoming objections, and closing. Uh, I now just for, I'm not want to toot my own horn here, but I've been selling for over 25 years, and one year, one quarter, I was the uh, highest grossing and revenue salesperson at Salesforce. So I reckon I can sell enterprise sales. Uh, so uh, Tescarita, God bless you. Um, I, I don't know what you think, but uh, I got. Uh, what did I get? For outside sales, I got a 30% score. I got zero on closing, uh, about 25% on overcoming objections and managing opportunities. So I don't know whether their tech's perfect yet, but I love, probably is, and, I, and I've just got to come to reality that I can't sell for shit and I've been riding on the coattails of other people all my life. Maybe that's the truth, Sam. But I love the fact that you go in there and you have a completely unbiased process 
to figure out whether you know a candidate which is blind masked you know you don't know who they are is being assessed for competency that are all i think it's excellent yeah i mean i thought this was super interesting for all kinds of reasons uh so test gorilla is this one i've heard of companies doing other kinds of sort of cognitive uh, aptitude tests the wonderlick is one that's used a lot of uh, i think even the nfl uses it uh, my parents are nurses. I believe at one point they had to do it for the organization they were in. So the wonder lick is one you can do. It takes about 12 minutes. It's just a very general cognitive aptitude test. It you know, asks you questions like, you know, this list of numbers, which one's the smallest? And then, you know, if Sally is in line behind Joe and Joe is in line behind Andrew, like, you know, who's in the first of the line? Like questions like this that are more like logic. It's not really meant to test you on anything specific to a job like Test Gorilla is. Um, and it makes sense, too, that it's kind of turning on its head. I mean, especially in, in engineering land. I mean, there's a lot of other kinds of uh, knowledge-based platforms that have existed because it's a real problem for companies, um, especially in engineering. People will say that they have a mastery of concepts uh, to get a job, believe it or not, Matt. They will say sometimes that they know things about programming languages, for example, that they've barely touched. And then they show up, and then they don't know it. And uh, so there's lots of ways to try to solve that. And, and I'm sure this is going to keep taking off. No, I think I think Hired.com was one of the first companies that did this in terms of doing, you know, code tests, right, at, at scale, which made a, a ton of sense. And, you know, in the world of sales uh, and anything to do that's customer facing, I particularly like a test like Wonderlick because it does, as you said, um, sort of the cognitive ability test. So for me, I've always looked for, you know, how do we test for uh, complex problem solving because they come certainly in sales and customer success, um, product development and engineering, you know, we need to be able to do that. Uh, and, and I think, you know, certainly in our courses at SASE, uh, we talk about using uh, tests like Caliper and Predictive Index and all those sorts of things as sort of a, a filter, as it were, just to, just to double click on, on, on those sorts of things because you can't really get cognitive aptitude figured out in a standard behavioral interview test. Um, but anyway, I, I think from my from my perspective, if you're if you're interviewing, being interviewed, and something like this gets thrown in front of you, that's a good thing because that means that they have got the right sort of filter uh, for quality, and you're joining a company where people have passed the bar. And if you get past the bar, then you're joining an A team, which is which is great. Yeah, I mean, I concur. I mean, we'll see though because if they find out, for example, that these tests have a disproportionate impact on you know people from different backgrounds, then you know, who knows, right? I mean, look at what happens with, with standardized testing. That's a very dicey issue. So I'm sure they're looking at all that. I'm sure they're trying to mitigate against bias. But at the end of the day, an objective test is always going to be less biased than a person reading a resume, right? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. This is especially, I think, is going to be useful for folks who are trying to hire very critical hires very early on very early on. So like I mentioned, it's, it's tough sometimes to figure out, does someone really know this particular subject uh, versus not? And where this comes up a lot, I have seen, I have experienced, I've been all over this issue, as I'm sure you have, Matt, the very first hires in go-to-market specifically. And I've actually gotten a bunch of uh, both recruiters hitting me up, asking me, hey, have you seen this company? They're looking for their first sales hire. And then even other people, the friends of mine, uh, who are rotating through different companies, and, and some of them are going to be the first account executive, uh, the first marketer at different companies. And, and I've seen some patterns. First of all, I think it's a pretty unique problem. Uh, I haven't seen, for example, a hiring platform that's just focused on finding these hires. You usually, as the experience of a job hunter, for example, is you will go through and, and you will find out 
either in the job description, oftentimes you don't find out until you start to speak with the company that they're looking for the very first rep uh, or the very first uh, hire in this department. And, you know, I think it makes for kind of an awkward fit, um, but something that's come up lately is like, which one makes sense first, sales or marketing? I have an opinion on this. I think marketing should always come first uh, before sales when people are hiring. I think a salesperson that shows up pre-marketing is, it's hard to determine if they have uh, if they're good at what they're doing, if they're performing well under the circumstances, or if the circumstances are dictating less than stellar performance. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why, but this is just one aspect of it. Uh, what do you think about first starting to build go-to-market teams for growing startups? What have you observed? What do you think works? Yeah, 100% agree with you on the marketing side of things. At the end of the day, you think of the scope of marketing, It's there are many facets to it, but the bit that we're really uh, focusing on early is product marketing, right? Specifically, uh, what does the ideal customer profile look like? Who is the persona that we're selling to? Uh, what should this journey look like? Like, How do they discover us? How do we do the qualification and take them through the the, the uh, assessment of what we offer, a fit and all that good stuff? You have to have that person first. Uh, more often than not, you get uh, very early stage startups thinking the salesperson is going to figure it out but that's not their core competence they can't do that they're going to be a great partner to product marketing right and giving them feedback from the field and saying look we said this and it didn't resonate or well here's what people are actually asking for so we so we iterate on on our messaging but yeah 100 we need to do that whether or not you think they're going to drive an inbound motion a product-led motion or an outbound motion doesn't matter you need you need marketing uh, first for sure um and uh i <laughs> One of, one of the things I, I will say here is that, you know, for the first sales hires, very challenging to hire people that you've never worked with and expect them to be successful. Because that first sales hire is going to be right in where this sausage is being made, right? You guys have no idea what you're doing. The messaging's wrong. The pricing's wrong. The, the, the product may or may not serve the purpose that you think it uh, serves. So, you know, uh, that's where uh, very, very early on, um, diverse teams actually cause problems because you don't have those personal relationships you can fall back on in the very early stage. And you know, Sam, I'm a huge advocate uh, for creating diversity uh, amongst our teams because we need that for innovation um, and to um, serve a, a diverse customer base. However, I will say for the very first highs yet, the reality is, as, I, as, as much as I would not like it to be this way, the reality is your very first highs should be folks that you uh, can collaborate with um, and make decisions with in times of high tension um, and often conflict. And that's why many of the founding teams you see have worked with each other in the past. And if you can get a salesperson you worked with in the past, really good. Yeah, and of course, you might be able to get a diverse person that you've worked with in the past, too. There's nothing preventing that. But I think your point is that you should get someone who you trust and prioritize that, that trust and uh, ability to work together, first and foremost, which makes sense. All right, I'm going I'm to I'm call you on this because I know, I know, you, I know, you, I know you, you mean well on this. But it's just for clarity for everybody, there, there's no such thing as a diverse person. There's a, there, there are diverse teams, right? So at the end of the day, if the person that you know doesn't look, sound, or have a background like you, sure, that creates diversity in the team. And I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't pretend like I am some kind of expert. I, 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 yeah, I mean well, uh, anyone, anyone who's yeah, listening yeah. to this. Um, anyway, but yeah, that makes sense. I, I've also seen like a phenomenon where a lot of people want to hire sales because what happens is a founding team doesn't really uh, want to do sales. 
Um, they may not have a sales background themselves. Maybe they're very technical. And you know, as soon as they get their company off the ground, then one of the first things they look for is uh, someone who can do the very stressful, awkward, you know, choppy aspects of their role that they're not used to, and, and a lot of times that, that's sales. And so they start to look for a salesperson very early on, kind of unload that for them. But it's before marketing, right? So really what they would do by getting a salesperson in the door this early before they've closed for you know, several deals themselves or however many, um, is that, like, again, they don't really know if the salesperson is, is good or bad. Jason Limkin always recommends, for example, hiring two salespeople when you first start sales. That way you know, you can kind of isolate your variables and you know, for example, if they're not performing, is it because of product market fit? Um, is there something going on with our pricing model? I mean, there's so, so many variables when you're starting out. You really need to reduce as many of them as you can to get, to get at what the issue is. But I do wonder about, like, because someone commented recently on my LinkedIn, actually. I made a similar point. And he said, well, early on, you know, you can have, like, generalistic go-to-market hires. And they're a little bit of sales. They're a little bit of marketing. And you're in a stage where you really have to be doing all of it. What do you make of that? I mean, is, it, is that still a marketing hire per se, but maybe they're closing for a while? Or, I mean, how do you get no, at I think that? That's I think that's bullshit. I think, I think you hire people that, that do the function that you need. For example, the product marketing to start with. The first salesperson is the person who wants the CEO title. You want the CEO title? Congrats, you're salesperson number one. If you don't want to sell, then you're not the CEO right? You can't start a company and not be a salesperson. And you may not be good at it, but you got to figure it out, get to get an advisor or a coach or whatever else, but you must do that job. There's no such thing as a go-to-market generalist that you hire. Uh, you need to come, they need to be really good at what you're hiring them for. And specifically it's marketing or sales. And I completely agree with you, Sam, it's marketing first and then you get sales. The other thing we've got to point out, Sam, is people often make the mistake of saying, oh, I'm going to hire somebody who can build a team behind them. That's stupid. You don't need a manager for the first six months to a year. You need someone who can sell the heck out of your product and can help your product marketing and product teams figure out what features you need to build and, and what messages by the feedback they get from from the field right so you know if they happen to have the capacity to grow into management or team lead fantastic but that's not my hiring filter my hiring filter are those first two people they're going to go out and sell the heck out of it that, that's what i think Awesome. Very bold point. Love it, love it, love it. Well, you know something that people can't do sometimes besides to just sell? Uh, turns out people really can't write that well. Have you noticed this? I get some emails sometimes, Matt, and I'm like, good Lord, did you go to school? Do you know how grammar works? And I'm not like a stickler. I don't expect everybody to be perfect. I'm definitely not perfect. But especially with longer form content, first of all, I'm seeing it fall out of fashion uh, I've not seen nearly as many long emails or long form content pieces being written outside of a content marketing department in quite some time. What's your experience been with this? Oh, I'm devastated. It makes me very sad. So say, I think, you know, we've got this course called Writing Winning Proposals and it, it's sort of experiential, right? So at the end of it, everyone submits uh, a two to three page proposal based on a case study. And I, recently we just finished a course and I was kind of devastated. When I, I would say like 30% of them just like wouldn't even get past high school uh, English, right? And if simple things, just run on sentence, sentence fragments, um, using uh, abbreviations that are emoji style. I can't even think of the language for it, you know? Um, it's just, just terrible. 
And so anyway, the, the good news, my friend, the good news is there are some really good tools out there to save you from yourself. And again, none of the stuff we talk about on this podcast has any relationship to us at all. So please know that Grammarly, right? I'm like, this is a plugin that even I have started using just to save myself time and proofreading. I can probably do it myself, but it just makes life so much easier. But Goodness me, if you're going to be selling to a senior person and you, you're creating segment fr fragments and, and things that just don't tie together, you're never going to get anywhere, especially if you're asking someone to write you checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars or even tens of thousands of dollars, frankly, because uh, why would they trust you with a business outcome if you can't even write a, a decent proposal? It's, it's a sad state of affairs. I, I, did, I did English literature uh, as part of my undergraduate. Um, and one of the things back, this is well over 20 years ago. And I remember uh, the comp sci students that I, that I worked with that ended up being um, consultants or whatnot. That was one of the biggest complaints from my friends at Accenture or Deloitte or these other firms. Like, these young people can't write. Right? It's unbelievable. So... I don't know what the answer is, Sam, except to say, use a tool. If you know you're not good at it, Grammarly or something like that, because it's, it's really, it's killing it. I think it's a lot of, I mean, they say writing is thinking, right? And so as the reader of someone else's words, you attribute to them the thoughts that they're expressing to you. And if they're not able to write them coherently, it makes you think that they're not thinking coherently. Now that not, might not be true, but that's the impression that it gives. And I think you're right. I think people just never write. I think writing is a muscle. If I go longer than a few months without writing something long form, I really feel like it is a lot of effort. It's like going to the gym. You get a little bit out of shape and it takes a while to build that muscle back up and get to where you can start writing well again. And I think some people just never develop that muscle, just like some people never go and touch a barbell. Uh, some people really never go uh, and write anything of substance without being forced. I think I, I've heard, I don't know that this is true. I've heard schools are actually... Um, like lowering standards uh, in America to a big degree on writing long form content. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I definitely think that the reading has to be at an all time low. Uh, and I think that probably has a lot to do with it too. If you're not exposed to long form text, how can you be turning around and producing long form text in response? And you know, I'm a little bit guilty of this too, Matt. I don't know about you. I feel like my attention span has, has just shrunk so much in the last three or four years. And I'm not even on TikTok, you know? I'm like, <laughs> I put myself above these things, I think. But when I sit here and try to read like a long article or even a really long email, I find myself slipping into scanning and darting mode almost immediately. And I have to force myself to go back and read it. And I'm very disappointed in myself about that. Yeah, you know what? Let me ask you this question. If you were to think of the last 12 months, what would you say percentage-wise or even quantitatively, uh, sorry, uh, you know, numerically, um, outside of percentages, fiction versus nonfiction that you consume? Um, I would, so I made an effort to read some books over pandemic and uh, fiction, I would say, between just like actual reading physical things, fiction was like maybe 75%. If I include reading articles and news stories, et cetera, fiction would shrink down to like probably 5%. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I couldn't find any. Um, I should, should we should look it up in terms of publishing statistics. But my 
feeling is mo- the, the, the non-fiction reading time has collapsed relative to when I was a young guy. And I think the trouble with that is uh, business writing by, to, to be effective is punchy, pithy, and, and uses standardized language. And therefore our vocabularies, I'm sure, are shrinking. You know, the, the flowery, cre- creative, evocative um, uh, language that you see in non excuse me in fiction is what you need to paint a picture and storytell in proposals or or in trying to influence people's thinking and if you're not exposed to it then you know they say if you do a writing course one of the first things they say is read read more if you want to be a good author read a lot um, and I don't think people are doing it they're, they're just you know it's the it's the tweets it's the it's the short form consumption stuff. You know, it would be a great idea, Matt. I mean, just like reading fiction and reading nonfiction. I mean, but I don't really get the opportunity to read business proposals that much. You know, it'd be great if there was like a sample or a repository of like really good proposals. Maybe that people would even submit and, you know, anonymize them and do change the prices or whatever you got to do. I would love to see examples of that, but I guess you don't really get to see them because they're all proprietary. People don't want other folks ripping off their proposal. So maybe this is just not a problem that can really be solved. Maybe looking, how about this? What if you were to get with your own procurement department, you know, especially if you're at a sizable company, and just see if they could share with you a sampling of the nicer, longer form proposals that they're getting from vendors? Yeah, that would be a great idea. In fact, you're, you're sparking an idea. I think with our sassy community, we could probably get a repository of a few hundred anonymized proposals so people could see what they look like. I might have to work on that. That's a good idea. Look at this. That one's free. The next one's going to cost you, Matt. All right. Fair enough. All right, Sam, what time is it? Time for a new thing. Okay. Well, this is actually super relevant to writing. It's pretty wild. We didn't plan this, everybody. It just worked out this way. I was recently given uh, an email, was recently sent an email by an individual named Neil who has founded a company called Godsend. Godsend.ai. If you went and looked it up right now, you wouldn't see much of a landing page because it is super, super early for him. Uh, but I found that his email is a cold outbound email uh, that uh, was very simple. It had a little opening sentence that was personalized to my company. It had an explainer uh, chunk of text about you know several sentences that explained what it is that they did. And there was a video. And when you click on the video, you go to a separate landing page. Video on the left, a demo of their product, which I'll tell you about in a moment, and then a booking uh, screen on the right with Calendly. So presumably, you know, you watched the demo video as I did. I watched the demo, I was very impressed by it. And you know what, I booked a demo right away uh, because I want this. Here's what it does, Matt. Every, there's a lot of these things, there's like Vidyard, there's all sorts of solutions for, you know, sending decent outbound emails to people and giving them a way to see what your product does, giving them an easy way to book time with you. That's all table stakes, right? Everybody's got stuff for that. But what's, what Godsend does is, it, it's, and we've actually talked about this in a, on a previous uh, podcast, uh, copy.ai. So if you're not familiar, there's this you know, thing called GPT-3, which uses machine learning algorithms to take a bunch of text as input. You know, In this case, thousands of emails have been used. And then it gets trained up to the point where you can actually write emails um, automatically, like soup to nuts. Uh, with a personalized uh, sentence at the top that, that's catered to the company. So it pulls in, in this case, uh, company information from like Crunchbase and LinkedIn and about what the company does. And it, it looks, it's pretty snappy, Matt. It's pretty snappy. I'm looking forward to trying it out because uh, the hardest thing to do when you're trying to, to write a bunch of emails to people is just, you know, write a halfway decent one 
that is getting attention, that is still personalized to the company. And you know, I know this is gonna stop working. You know, when everybody piles onto this mat and they start using these tools to write emails for them, it is going to get egregious and possibly terrible. Um, and really good technology is going to counteract that. Uh, but for now, for now, uh, it's, uh, it looks pretty solid. And I think that there's a good chance that it is going to take off. What do you think about this? Yeah, sounds pretty interesting. I mean, I, I have not uh, seen seen it. Uh, just the, the stuff you sent me look pretty impressive. Um, I, uh, I I do like the specificity of the personalization at scale. It sounds pretty clever, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, it could be could be the death knell to BDRs if it ever gets right, right? Because uh, you know, one of the things I've often talked about is the fact that marketing automation tools are actually doing have done for a long time what a lot of the BDR teams are doing just because they don't have good leadership and good design right if i can replace a BDR with marketo or autopilot or one or you know one of these marketing tools it means you're doing it wrong but i see it so often if you're just doing insert name insert industry insert industry problem you don't need a human to do that that's right? true so Right. Uh, so if the AI is smarter than that and can and can get some nuance around it, then maybe 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 we're uh, going to be doing our BDRs out of a job. We'll see. Well, maybe I think we'll just uh, you know it's it's going to drive the the wages of AEs down probably because we're just going to start everybody out in closing roles. Uh, but anyway, all we really need is now is a proposal writing version of this. Then I'll be out of a job. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Matt, I think. All right, Sam. I think that. Um, wow, that about does it today. We covered a lot of ground. We sure did. So, uh, for you folks out there thinking about uh, jumping across the chasm or into a new company with uh, through the hoops that they're going to put you through with the <laughs> the uh, competency-based uh, skills things, there's uh, oh goodness me, we talked about first go to market hires and what that means, and the fact that I reckon people can't write. So that was a good episode, Sam. That's right. And uh, if you can't pass your test on outbound sales, don't ask Matt. Yeah, I am not a good coach. <laughs> All right, Sam. Have a great week. Me too.